Lord, what a privilege it is to take a vacation day every week as the gift you give it to us and to just not work and to gather together as your people to hear from your word how we might be your people and be a blessing to one another in the world around us. I ask, Lord, that as this word is brought forth, once again, you be faithful to your word among this, your people, and that we think your thoughts, that my words would be your words, that you would bend our wills to your own, and that, Lord, you bring revival in each and every one of us and set our hearts on fire with love for you and for your son, Jesus Christ, for it's in his name we pray. Amen. It is said no matter what institution you're part of, be it business, the arts, or sports, or even an academic group, that your, your organization is only as strong as your weakest link. Right? Well, that's exactly the point Paul's making in chapter 4 when it comes to his people in Ephesus. He's trying to begin the practical part of Christian living in this book, and he's laid the foundation for us. And if I could take this whole passage, verses 1 through 16, and put in a sentence, it would be this. Since we have the fullness of God in us, our task is to walk worthy together, doing the hard work of unity, growing into mature believers. Okay, let me repeat that. Since we have the fullness of God in us, we are to walk worthy together, growing toward Christian maturity. Now, we're going to flesh that out. And what I realized as I was studying this, this could be three sermons. So I'm, you know, bear with me, all right? Because there's a lot here. But I think we can get through it and be a blessing to one another as we look at this passage together, being unity, and build up the body of Christ. Amen? That's what we're about. Last week we had heard a good summary of all of chapters 1 through 3 in the middle of chapter 2 where Paul reminded us that we're saved by grace through faith in Christ and Jesus alone. You can't add to it. You can't subtract from it. You place your trust in Christ and therefore, we don't live isolated lives. We're not a, a building block of a cathedral set out upon the, the brick pile. No, the, the stonemason brings us and puts us in the cathedral, if you will. That we're all to be one together in this glorious temple of Christ with Jesus himself being the cornerstone. All right? Now, that's very theological and that's very nice. Yay! We get real practical today. Look what Paul says in verse chapter 1. I, therefore, now that we know that the, what the therefore is there for, okay? I'm a prisoner of the Lord. He's in prison for this. And he died for what he's about to tell you and me and the Ephesians. So I think it would be good for us to listen to the Apostle Paul because this is an inspired scripture. We're therefore, there's four things that Paul gives us for the rest of these verses that help us to live our lives here in 21st century America, here in the suburbs of Cleveland, Ohio. We're to walk worthy. We're to receive the gifts that he's given us. We're to, not only that, mature in Christ and to build unity by being truth-tellers in love. Okay, 
four things there. Number one, walk worthy. Two, accept the gifts that he's given us. Three, grow in maturity. And four, make sure that we build unity by truth-telling in love. All right, so let's look at these, shall we? First, we're to walk worthy in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. There's a lot there, right? There were to be known as gentle people, humble people, patient people, bearing with one another in love. So let's look at these. We're to be humble with humility. That's defined as an attitude of the heart that recognizes God's love for others and is willing to put their needs first. This was a value which was not ever exalted in Greco-Roman culture. To be a humble person was what the slaves did, not the masters. All right? If you were humble, you didn't have any self-respect. And here, so it was countercultural then, and it's countercultural now in our whoever has the loudest microphone today wins the battle, right? We're to be humble people. The Christian is to be different from their culture, like Jesus, who came not to be served, but to serve. Humility lights up others, blesses others, and seeks to serve with the same dignity and kindness with Jesus himself chose to live his life. It's the total opposite of pride, which turns the spotlight on ourselves and seeks to justify the self. Next, we're to be gentle people. And this goes hand in hand with humility. Gentle people are not harsh. They don't strive always to get their way. They're considerate. They're not always complaining about other people. They're bearing others without irritation or resentments or faults. And, and when they're, they're injured by those people, they let it go. When they get angry, it's usually more at the wrongs done to others than the wrong done to themselves. See, gentleness is vital to Christ Church's unity, ladies and gentlemen, because it soothes our rough edges. And, it, and it, it makes this place a safe place for everybody. You belong here because we're working together to be humble and gentle people. Jesus described himself as humble and gentle in Matthew chapter 11. And he said in the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 5, Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. If all of us here at Christ Church, and actually the church universal, are humble and gentle people, I guarantee you most of our conflicts and disagreements will go away. They will. Next, we're called to exhibit the characteristics of patience with one another. I love John Stott's definition in his commentary on Ephesians. He defines patience as long-suffering towards really aggravating people. <laughs> huh? Isn't that great? See, patience gives people time to mature. Patience gives people, we, we all need this, but we get so little love. You know, in this... Push, I get push notifications on my phone from ESPN, all kinds of news sources, all the time. We're an instant culture. We've never had so much information as we do today. And we get so frustrated that the microwave isn't heating this food fast enough. And yet we treat others with that attitude, don't we? 
when our internet is so stinking slow. All right? It takes so long. But the Lord is not so with his people. Because it creates an atmosphere for people to fail. For people to learn from their mistakes. And to grow together. It's a space for feelings to cool down. To regain their footing and reflect Jesus' posture toward us. And to turn to Jesus and receive the new life that is found only in him. And the last characteristic of a worthy walk is bearing with one another in love. In other words, having loving tolerance. Not the definition of tolerance or modern day tolerance, but true biblical and Webster dictionary tolerance, which is the action side of patience. It's how we can bring ourselves to have empathy for others, forgive others, and treat people with grace, even though we don't see eye to eye. It's okay, all right? Because we remember how graciously Jesus acted toward us. Because even while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And he bore with us, therefore we bear with others. And we welcome others into our midst with the open arms of tolerance and love because our hearts were warmed by his flame. And we bear with one another with such love. And when we do that, it begins to create Unity, like God is unified in verses 4 through 6. There's, he says the word one seven times here. There's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God or Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Seven ones. That's who God is. Notice Paul didn't say the basis for our unity is reserved for the future, but it's right here, right now, because of who God is. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. All bring it together, and that power is in you, in Jesus Christ. What makes you a Christian is not that you're just a nice person, or a moral person, or that you believe the Bible, although that's all true. We should exhibit those things. What makes you a Christian is that you have the life of God in you by the power of the Holy Spirit. This means don't ever think of Christianity mainly as a way of life. It's not just a way of being good, nice, and kind. We should be nice and kind, and you're such nice people. I'm so glad you're nice. We should be kind to the poor, caring for the poor, and being a person in terror. Of course it's that, but that's not the essence of this. Don't insult the gospel. And don't insult yourself by thinking Christianity mainly is being a nice person. Christianity makes you a new person. You're a new creation. You're not just nice. You're new in him. You're alive to the fullness of God. And because of that, we can be humble, gentle, patient, Bear with one another in love. So therefore, because of that reality, we accept the gifts that God has given us. Verse 8 and 9. I could do a whole sermon on verses 8 and 9. I'm not going to. The bottom line is, accept God's gifts of salvation in Christ. He's the ascended Lord. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. He's interceding for us right now in Him. He's a gift to us. 
And he's above all things, Paul says. And therefore, verse 7, we accept the gifts of the offices of the early church and some of those still remain today. The gifts of the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the pastors, teachers. Okay, And he gave these offices, these people, as gifts to the church. The apostles, the apostle Paul. This is an office of the early church. We don't have apostles today, but we have people with the gift of apostleship. These are entre- spiritual entrepreneurs. When someone comes up with a ministry idea, you go, wow, that's really crazy. Well, if, if the Lord's calling them to do it, and it's bearing fruit in other people's lives, well, that's apostleship. You know, it's a, it's a spiritual gift, but we don't have the apostles anymore in that true sense. If someone comes and says to you, you're a, you're, I'm an apostle, yeah. You know, they're not on the same plane as Paul, Peter, Barnabas, and all the heroes that we've studied in the book of Acts, right? There's the prophets. The gift of prophecy is nuanced today, but we don't have the prophet Isaiah, Elijah, and all the minor prophets, Ezekiel. You, know, you can just look at them. They were mighty men and women who spoke with authority by the Holy Spirit at a certain time, and the pure prophets are no longer there. But the gift of prophecy, some have, that they see that if the Lord takes the church in a certain direction, such results will happen. And if the Lord, or we go another direction, these results will happen, and we don't want to go there. There's those kinds of people who have that gift today. And they speak with me about it, but it's not the same as it was in the Old Testament. It's nuanced. But then there's the gifts of evangelists. We have those guys today, right? People who are naturally gifted to share the good news of Jesus. We lost the greatest one ever in Billy Graham this year. You know? I mean, he was naturally gifted like nobody else ever was. I mean, how many backwoods North Carolina guys could enter into the the Queen of England's presence? That's a God thing, you know? And placarded the gospel all over the world, right? There were early church evangelists, there were modern-day evangelists, there were early church pastors and teachers, and there's present-day pastors and teachers. The pastor-teacher is one office. It's the person who shepherds the congregation, cares for the congregation, is willing to counsel the congregation, and also to teach the truth of the Word of God to His people. He doesn't make it up on His own. He tells what's there so they can... What, what is it? Why does He do that? Continue. It doesn't stop there. Verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. <laughs> that... The pastor-teacher, that's me, all right, equips the saints, that's you, to do the ministry that only you can do in the unit, in the, in the church, among us. You see, and during the 20th century, a weird category of minister came around where he became a professional tea-drinking chaplain, all right? Now, I really like tea. And I drink it at 4 o'clock. I do. Just like my British friend Lucy. All right? Because that's what, that's what people of English descent do. It's good stuff. Only drink English tea, though. The American tea is not even close. All right? But that's not my calling. 
My calling is to preach the word and equip you for the ministry to only which you can do among us here at Christ Church, therefore bringing unity and maturity to us as a body. I'll tell you what my ministry is not, as some have believed, is a professional bread machine giving out communion. You need to be aware that this attitude is still among some of you because I had a new family, a new family which just joined the church in the last five years, come to me this week and said, just a few weeks ago, a family, we really didn't recognize them that well, but they came and they sat behind us. And the husband told the wife, don't listen to him, we're just here for communion. I'm not a bread machine. Do you think I make this up? This is not the gospel according to Gene Sherman. If it was, you'd all be baseball fans. <laughs> and you'd like country music. All right? No. You, God delights in the diversity of the gifts of God's people. And when you say something like that, it is toxic and it's left over from our old outfit, which we voted 296 to 4 to leave. I know who the four people were. So with an average Sunday attendance of 180 last month, that means 116 people are nowhere to be found. They are the moralists. They voted to leave just because they were really good people, but they didn't believe this. And if you believe that, and I'm going to find out who you are. <laughs> and when I do, I'm going to have, you think I'm going to come after and get you. I'm not. I'm scared to death for you. Because you have more life behind you than you have in front of you. You're standing at the gate of your entrance into God's presence. And if you don't repent and believe, it's not going to work out well for you. And I'm going to take my senior warden with me. And we're going to share how much Jesus loves you. And if you don't repent and believe, the bishop is going to say, you can't receive communion. I'm going to find out who you are. And because I love you, I'm going to share the truth with you because that's what I'll do with anybody. And that's the hard part of the job. But it's the right thing to do, and I will do it because that's what we do with one another. We're going to talk about that later because the reality is we all have a calling here. Every single one of us have a job here. And we're all called to walk in that. Why? Paul doesn't stop there. Verse 13, until we all to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ for building up the body of Christ until we all attain the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. Everything that happens at Christ Church is about preparing spiritual adults, spiritual maturity. Now, if that's the case, that means when we come to faith in Jesus, we're all immature. And here Paul is basically saying that even he is immature. Okay? He's saying that we may no longer be children. He's including himself in this. All right? In other words, we're spiritual babies. And we need to grow up. It's a radical statement. But, you know, the reason we need to be part of the church is to not stay as children. Because... There's nothing cute about a 50-year-old child, right? We will no longer be children, he says. See, we need the ministry of the church in our lives. 
We need to be ministering to each other. We need the, past, the apostles, the prophets, the pastors, the teachers, the evangelists to equip the saints so that all Christians are doing ministry so that we may no longer be childish in the faith. Now this is Paul. He's an apostle. And if Paul is able to say, we infants, what does that say about the rest of us? If Paul is, is, is what? A toddler, that makes me about three days old, I guess. Okay? It's an amazing contrast he makes here. You have the life of God in you, in Jesus Christ. And that's made you a spiritual baby. And I know something about babies. I have a grandbaby. And I've relearned the dynamics of having a baby. Babies are not discerning. Babies are self-centered. They want what they want when they want it. Babies are totally absorbed with themselves. Babies aren't steady on their feet. They have a very short attention span. Here, take her. All right? By contrast, Paul is saying we are to be mature, theologically wise, discerning, not self-centered, not always thinking about ourselves, steady, no matter what life throws at us. And Paul rightly is saying he, even he doesn't have that. He's not as mature as he ought to be. So before we go one step further, there's two opposite tensions that you have to hold together when it comes to this passage. The first is, you should never be shocked at the immaturity of other believers. Because spiritually speaking, every church is filled with spiritual babies regardless of the age of anybody in the church. So in fact, when Paul says that even he is spiritually immature, that means every church is filled, spiritually speaking, with lots of poopy diapers. So why are you surprised when Christians around you are babies in the faith? You're not saved by being mature. You're saved by faith in Jesus Christ alone, which comes and helps people grow and turns people into babies who have a long way to go. Now the opposite tension of that is, on the other hand, Stop putting up with your own spiritual maturity and just say to me, that's just the way I am. That's the way I was raised. I know I have flaws, and I know that's the way it shouldn't be, but that's just the way I am. Really? You have the power of God in you. You know, is, it, is the power of God no match for all your bad habits and flaws? Of course not. You don't put up with it because we're called to grow. Being a Christian is like riding a bicycle, I'm told. You have to move forward or you fall off. So, we have a worthy walk. We accept the gifts that God has given us. We grow in this maturity. And last, we build unity at Christ Church by being truth tellers. Notice what he says. Verse 15. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined together and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. There is no growing into spiritual maturity just by working on it yourself as an individual. 
It's through deep involvement in a church community and through the increasing of the unity of the closest of relationships within that community that will grow into maturity. How do you become mature? By growing in unity. That is, with other people in the church, and as you become more and more one in your faith together, and in your experience, that's what the knowledge of the Son of God is. The more and more you become, the more unified and you closer and deeper your relationships get, the more you will grow into maturity into what Paul says, mature manhood. Verse 13. And that's singular. <laughs> it's fascinating. To mature manhood. That we're all one. Which means, of course, if we want to become like this, we have the fullness of God in us, and we want this divine life to grow in us. It only happens when the life of the, of the fullness of God is reflected in our lives together as God's people. That means, by the way, you just can't drop in on church and expect that you're going to grow. You can't have an isolated, independent Christian life away from this community as a member of Christ Church. It can't be done. Do you realize how outrageous and inappropriate it is to have the life of God in you and yet there are people around you you avoid just because you don't like them? Just because you're bothered by them? Just because you have nothing in common with them? The basic principle here that Paul's trying to drive home is we need this tight, close community and the specific practice how we get there is discovered in verse 15, and there's nothing more important that I can tell you this morning. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. That's it. You will not grow. I will not grow unless we are plunged into a community of people who have this perfect balance of truth and love in their speech with one another. And you know what? That's kind of difficult. Because we have people who love without truth, and that's deadly, because they're living under delusion of who they are, because nobody ever speaks truth in their lives, therefore they never grow. And then we have people that are so direct that they speak truth without love, and it's deadly and nobody listens to you. Right? Truth without love does not accomplish truth. Love without truth does not accomplish love. We need them together. We need to be plunged into a community that's filled, and every single one of us struggle with this, don't we? We tend to lean to one or the other direction. You know, we spiritually grow or live, we can't grow without this. And we're not capable of giving it to one another perfectly. So what's the answer? The good news of Jesus. Because what did Jesus do? First of all, because of the truth, and the truth is that we are sinners and we're all lost. Unless someone pays for that sin, we're lost eternally. On the other hand, there's also love. Jesus went to the cross because he loved us. And I want us to consider that this morning. It's the most amazing message of love that anybody could give you all at the same time. That first, the truth, you are so lost, you are so messed up, you are so condemned... Nothing less than the death of God can save you. And two, when Jesus went to the cross, he was also saying, I love you so much. 
You're a person of such worth, of such value. I love you that much. I'm willing to die for you. And you know what that means? It means it's really hard to accept, but unless you see the magnitude of this truth, you'll never see the amazing love of God. In closing, Tim Keller told this phenomenal story about two women who were friends, and one woman went into business all for herself, but she was an absolutely horrible bookkeeper. She messed up her books, and the friend came in and had an accounting background and said, look, I'll keep your books for you for free. And at the end of the month, if you're short, I'll make up the debt. Don't worry about it, the shortfall. I got it. Don't worry about it. So a couple months went by. The woman says, oh, this is a great deal. I don't have to worry about the books at all. She has it covered. Until she came in and she realized there's no possible way she could have paid off that debt. And it's only then she became grateful. She came in and realized, I'm a mess, aren't I? I absolutely messed this up. I had no idea how much you were loving me. See, unless we see how lost we are, which is the message of the cross and that we're condemned, you will not understand the magnitude of love. But the good news is that Jesus comes with this truth and love. And if you understand that and you take it in, you rediscover or discover for the first time what Christ has done for you on the cross, that humbles you out of ever telling the truth abrasively and it affirms you out of your need to always please people and never speak the truth. Therefore, you speak the truth in love exactly the way you need to. And ladies and gentlemen, we have to be this kind of community. And we have to make it happen. We also have to be the recipient of the blessing of being in a community like that. And so we've got a plethora of groups coming up this fall for you to be part of. We're an imperfect group of people gathering together in life groups called journey groups on Wednesday nights. We have journey groups Tuesday morning, which is a women's only group that's forming. We have the Avon Lake Group, which is a missional community that meets every other week, breaking bread together, looking at the book of 1 John this fall and James in the winter and spring next year. And we're going to look at those books and do life together and do some mission together. We're looking at forming one of those in Rocky River. Pray for us. We're also praying that another women's Bible study will come out for those women who aren't able, for whatever reason, to do the journey group on Tuesday mornings. We've got the businessmen's group that meets in Rocky River bi-weekly during the year. We have the CBS ministry, which meets on Thursdays in Fairview Park for ladies only. Friends, we have the community. We have it. Look at the cross and come adjust your schedules and be part of it so you can be known, encouraged, and walk together because that's what God desires for each and every one of us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful that you've given to us so much. One of the things you've given us is your life, and yet we've discovered that that life only turns us into babies, and we need to do something about that. That means we need to be part of a greater community in which we speak the truth and love to one another. Help us to be in a community like that with all these groups that we've mentioned this morning. Not only help us to be in a community, help us to be a community like this. Because we know it will turn us into people more and more like your son, Jesus Christ. 
and each and every one of us belong, not because of our maturity, but because of our Savior. For it's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.